Welcome back, Tiger fans, to Rockin' Nation's football podcast. I'm Nate Edwards. That's Brandon BK Kylie. This is before the box score. And, you know, it's it's May 26th. There's really nothing happening in Missouri football at all over the past couple weeks. So what BK and I are going to do tonight is basically just take the next hour and 20 minutes and talk to you about home care. Obviously, Brandon is a, a brand new home buyer. Uh, the BK family moved into their place last week. Uh, I've been a homeowner for, uh, oh gosh, five years now, and I've learned some things, and I thought it'd be worth it to share those those experiences with with BK, and uh, we'll take your questions at the end of it as well. You can tweet them to the Rockin' Nation flagship and talk about your experience as well. So I wanted to talk about HVAC units. Um, <laughs> oh, wait, wait, hold on. I'm getting some breaking news here. Uh, something in my earpiece, something about how nobody on the Missouri football roster is left anymore, and everybody's... Butts are on fire, and we're all going to... Uh, good news, good news. I can confirm uh, there are still players. Okay. Now, there are only a few of them, but they do exist. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, so I guess we got we got, we got got some things to talk about. Then we will put HVAC talk with Nate and BK <laughs> on the back burner for uh, for a couple of weeks anyway. Because, yeah, it, um, we're in some interesting, interesting roster management time frame right now. And, and, and just as a, as a heads up, uh, if you like talking about roster management, this is going to be the episode for you. If you don't, you should. But that's basically what we're going to be talking about. We got some news and notes at the end, uh, but we really want to churn and t- and talk about through every everything that's happened in the past week, as far as roster management turnover goes, what players are gone, what that means going forward, and what the Tigers can do to plug those holes. So, BK, are you ready to talk roster management? This is my favorite thing to do with you, Nate. Of course, I'm always ready to talk roster management. Very good. Okay, so as you may or may not have heard, we've had a pretty good exodus of players via the transfer portal. It's it was a it was a trickle kind of at the beginning of the 2020 season, working its way through the end of the 2020 season with the opt-outs not coming back. We had a couple people in January leave, but really the screws started turning. The pressure started turning up this past week because we had three transfers occur kind of all in a row that I think gave a lot of people pause and question what's going on in the Missouri football locker room right now. The first one was Jalen Knox, slot receiver. Um, who Again, we've talked about on this on this show before, like, he was probably passed up by a bunch of other guys, and he's not really a receiver to start with, but he decided to transfer after, uh, gosh, he had started you know, at least 15 games over the past couple of years. Um, and then that was soon followed up by two more really big transfer hits, not from a production standpoint, but from a depth standpoint. Because Jarvis Ware, the upperclassman corner, who started the 2020 season as the number one corner, on the team, and Chris Mills, uh, basically a depth piece in the cornerback room, but a guy nonetheless, a cornerback. Both of them are leaving the team. So we have spoken before about the roster, about class balance, and about how this defense next year, especially in the secondary, was going to be a little rough because there's going to be a lot of new faces. Well, listeners, we just took two familiar faces and threw them away <laughs> from the secondary. And we are now left with seven cornerbacks, uh, all of which are some flavor of freshmen. 
Uh, BK, I want to start with Jalen Knox. I feel like that's the easiest one to digest, and I want to move to Jarvis and Chris after that. But for, as far as Jalen Knox goes, what was your first thought when you heard the news that he was transferring? So I think I came out on a different place than a lot of Mizzou fans based on the reaction that I've seen on Twitter and social media and whatnot. And obviously that's not a perfect gauge for where the actual fan base is. But um, I wasn't surprised. I think he got jumped on the depth chart by Mookie Cooper immediately after Mookie came to campus. And Jalen Knox's role was already diminished by the end of last season. And I'm a big Jalen Knox fan. I think he can play at this level. I think he's a guy that, when given opportunity, showed he is the level of athlete that you need in the SEC. That being said, I think it's pretty clear this coaching staff prefers Mookie Cooper to him. And that role is very specific. It's not just that he's a slot receiver. It's that he's a gadget player as a slot receiver. And that's pretty much what Mookie Cooper is going to be. When you have those types of guys that you have to manufacture touches for, Nate, you know this. Our audience is smart. They know this. There's only so many to go around. And so when you've got Mookie Cooper and you've got Tyler Beatty, I mean, how many of those touches are you going to be able to contribute to Jalen Knox as well? I think he saw the writing on the wall. I think he saw Dominic Lovett as well come in and immediately have some opportunities. And he was probably like, man, I'm just not going to play very much next year. And if that's the role that you're going to be, if you're Jalen Knox, you can go somewhere else and play. He's good enough to do that. Mizzou just upgraded at the position. And so they recruited over him. And this is what happens at good universities. Good programs do this. Good players end up going elsewhere and succeeding because your school decided, hey, we know we're good at this spot, but we can be potentially great there. And so they take the shot on it. So I was not all that surprised by it. And I I think compared to a lot of Mizzou fans, I was not all that worried about it. Where were you at when you initially heard the news, though? I mean, very, very similar. Uh, you and I have... <laughs> have benefited from talking about this constantly about especially the receiver position, the types of guys that are in that room and how many replicas of the same kind of player that we have. And Jalen Knox, at least from spring reports, certainly from what we saw in the spring game is a poor man's Mookie Cooper, even if he had been on campus for three years at this point, but it's, it's even before Mookie got on campus BK, because you look back at last year, the first five games of the season, Jalen Knox was targeted 27 times. The last five games of the season, 12. He was not, he was not a significant role in the offense as the season went on. And to my knowledge, it's not like he had COVID or he was injured or anything. It was really just the emergence of Kiki Chisholm, mm-hmm. right? The emergence yep. of Towski Dove. Barrett Bannister siphoning off those snaps because he's just an automatic first down. And and that was it. That was it. So this 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 decision for Jalen, number one, is the right one. But number two, those factors started going into play in November of 2020. This is not some snap decision. This is not a recent development. This is not, oh, Mookie Cooper's better than me. Oh, Dominic Lovett's better than me and he's going to be here longer. No, this is, I'm not getting targets when we have 50 dudes on the team <laughs> and and now you bring in other guys. And, you know, when he was in high school, he was a running back by trade. 
Now, I think he was recruited as an athlete, but he could do both. But I, th- I think that's his more natural position, and that's why he was slotted or he was, he was suited so well for the slot receiver position. But if you got all these other guys, like you said, we have improved that position. <laughs> we have improved it. Drinkwitz has improved it. We don't need him anymore. And that's unfortunately the business end of football, especially when you're talking about college. That sucks. But Jalen's going to have an opportunity to be that guy, either a running back or, or a decent slot receiver at another place that's going to actually need him. Because as of right now, Missouri does not need him. It's true. Um, and like you look at down the stretch, especially Vandy, Arkansas, Georgia, like you look at those games, he had two touches, three touches, four touches. You go even further back, four and four in South Carolina and Florida. Like he just, he wasn't a significant part of the offense. And like you said, that that's with like, Micah Wilson and Barrett Bannister getting opportunities at at slot. And I think that was the moment when we probably should have seen like, oh, Drinkwitz prefers to have a slot receiver as opposed to a gadget player in that position. Mm -hmm. And I hope people understand what I'm making the distinction thereof. It's kind of what you said, where if you're looking at Jalen Knox, don't even call him a wide receiver. He's not that. He doesn't play receiver. He plays this gadget position where you're manufacturing touches specifically for him. Meanwhile, guys like Michael Wilson and Barrett Bannister, like Barrett Bannister in particular, that's a guy that's going to run you a drag route on third and six. So he's going to go right across the middle of the field or he's going to run a hitch where he's going five to seven yards, stopping right there. It's timing route on third and four, and he's going to get you the first down. Like those... Those are the types of routes that those guys run. Knox just doesn't do that stuff very often. Most of his stuff is either at or behind the line of scrimmage when he's touching the football. And then it's all about what can he do with the ball in his hands. And he's good at it. He's really good at it. It's why I enjoyed watching him so much at Mizzou. But Mookie's better. Dominic Lovett is better. Or at least that's what the coaching staff seems to think. And they're the opinion that matters. So when you see it like that and you got bumped up for the slot duties by Michael Wilson, Barrett Bannister, those guys, well, there's just there's nowhere for you to go. And the the reaction for the player, the reaction for the team is probably in line with this. Time to go elsewhere. Time to try to do this thing elsewhere. And I, I bet you he goes somewhere else and has success because he's a good football player. He is. He absolutely is. I don't I don't know where he's looking. I don't, I don't know who is who was looking for a guy like him, but somebody takes a flyer on him. He's going to do well. Absolutely. Um, so good luck, Jalen. I mean, Hey, thanks for, thanks for everything that you did. Uh, had some, had some interesting moments, had a couple big plays here and there. And the, the potential, uh, at the beginning of 2020 was great, but yeah, like you said, this is what great teams do. They improve via recruiting. <laughs> they improve. Um, and so this is just a casualty of that and it sucks, uh, kind of in the interim, but Jalen's going to land on his feet. He's going he's gonna to be a valuable piece somewhere else. Which leads us to Jarvis Ware and Chris Mills. And I don't think any Tiger fan is mourning their loss like on an individual basis. You know, Like you said, like Twitter or social media is not the best barometer for these sorts of things. But when it came to Jarvis, <laughs> Jarvis Ware, there's not a lot of positivity as far as conversations about him goes. See, I, thought it, I thought it was a good that's player. That's strange to me. That's strange to me because I, I, if there's a big loss out of the guys that left, it's him. 
Um, he he's the one that you look at for me at least, and you can tell me if you disagree with this, Nate. Um, that if if there is a loss over the last few weeks that's going to come back to hurt Mizzou and it will show up on the football field this year for me, it's just Jarvis Ware, not not any of these other guys. I, I thought he was. He's not like a stud corner, but he kind of reminded me of early days to Marcus Acey in some ways where it's like mm-hmm. he gets a lot more crap than is probably deserved for the way that he's played when he's been on the field. He's been fine. Corner is a thankless position, man. The only time your name gets called is probably when you've done something poorly or when the guy against you has done something really outstanding. So I I think they're going to miss him. Um, but that, that was kind of my reaction. If there was one that their name, when they when came across the transfer portal, uh, I was like, Ooh, eesh, Ooh, that's the one that it was that way for me. Yeah. And Jarvis, Jarvis was a great corner. Yeah. I know. I think he drew the ire of Mizzou fans because they felt like he, he was called for too many penalties, which when you are a, <laughs> when you excel at man coverage as a cornerback, guess what? You are going to be called for for pass interference a lot more than some guy who's sitting in zone. That's that's what Ryan Walters liked to do. That's how he coached him up. That's what they did. So that was not a Jarvis Ware speciality. That was kind of everybody. But, I mean, when he was on the field, and he wasn't on the field a lot, I understand that, uh, at least in 2020. But when he was on the field, he he did not allow a lot of completions against him. Um, I don't remember off the top of my head how many it was, but I know uh, he went up against uh, Alabama's receivers, didn't allow a catch. Uh, LSU, he didn't allow a catch. I'm just looking at my notes here. Tennessee, or sorry, uh, Tennessee, he allowed one. Uh, sorry, he allowed three, but like it was only for 18 yards. Like he was very, very good. But it's less about what Jarvis Ware brought as a stat production guy and more about what he represented to the cornerbacks as a whole. And the, very similar to Chris Mills here. Like Jarvis Ware was not only production, not only was a starter. Uh, going to be a third-year starter, but he was a guy in the room. <laughs> he was, he was an eighth cornerback, just like Chris Mills was a ninth cornerback, and they're both gone now. And now you have seven guys, the oldest, most experienced of which is Ish, Ish Burdine, who is technically a redshirt freshman but a third-year player. You've got Enos Rakestraw, who'll be a second-year starter. You have Chris Abrams Drain, who was playing receiver last year. And then everybody else was playing high school ball. Those are all your quarterbacks. That's all of them. Now, we've we've talked about on this show our expectations, how we can't wait to see Dalen Cardell play, how we think Zaquan Reeves and Davian Sistruck have just all this potential that can be unlocked. Well, they better unlock it now, or they're going to have plenty of opportunities to do it live fire because that's it. Those are the seven guys we have. And there's no one else currently uh, to to take up those snaps. So they are going to get thrown in the fire early if nothing changes. And I mean, honestly, this is kind of a this is kind of a fire drill. This is a wake up and oh god, they need to do something, or just embrace the fact that we're going to get just our asses torched through the air all of 2021. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's 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 kind of dire. I'm not like, you know, don't panic, but it would be really nice to get a couple guys. How are you feeling right now, PK? Um, pretty much like you are. Uh, I, you know, I'm a fan of some of these freshman corners that they've brought in. We've talked about this in the past. Um, I, I think some of these guys have really high potential. 
if there's going to be a freshman that steps on the field this year, it's Carnell. Uh, Birding and Rakestraw would be my guess on, like, as is currently constructed. If they didn't add anybody, I think they're going to. We can get into that. But if they didn't, those would be the two that I would expect to start opening day. Carnell would probably be your number three corner right now. He's a true freshman out of Indianapolis. He was a four-star recruit, and he was a four-star recruit for a reason. He's polished. Out of all of the young guys that they brought in this year, he is the one that is, at least in my opinion from watching them, the most prepared to play on day one. Reeves and Sistrunk, those guys are all potential. And it's about, hey, we think that we can build these guys into players by the time that they're done here at Mizzou. This is not a year one play, so I would not expect much from there. Jackson, I don't know. I, I just, I don't know what he's going to be. And then as you mentioned, Chris Abram-Strain, that's a converted wide receiver. Can he play right away? I, I don't know. I wouldn't expect it, but uh, maybe he can surprise us. So my guess would be we're going to see a lot of three and maybe even sometimes four safeties on the field. Um, and I think that would be, again, as currently constructed, the way that they get through this thing by adding those defensive backs onto the field as opposed to corners. But uh, they're not in a very good spot right now for the cornerback situation. Yeah. If you're looking at the safety room and trying to figure out any guy who can, who can pinch in as a corner, Stacy Brown and Chris Sheeran have corner experience in high school. And I believe Jalen Carly's has, was a corner in high school. But that's about it. <clears throat> um, you know, maybe, maybe, yeah, like you said, four safeties get on the field. One of them is a nickel or, you know, playing the corner position basically. Um, but yeah, if you don't find anybody, that's kind of what you have to do for the rest of this year. I, I love Chris Saban's drain. Uh, the fact that he's willing to, to make the switch from receiver to corner. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if he volunteered or if he was voluntold. Um, but you know, as 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 the poet Jack Black put, "What's your favorite position?" Eh, that's not for me, but uh, I'll do it for you. And that's what he's doing, man. He is he is making the switch. That is hard to do, by the way, BK. Going from receiver to corner, very. I know a lot of people kind of like, well, why it should be totally natural? Still playing the ball, yeah, still playing the ball. Guess what? When you're a receiver, you know where you're going. <laughs> the skills as a receiver is finding separation, selling your route, and having solid hands. Your skills as a corner, closing speed, <laughs> knowing that you're gonna get ju- you're gonna get juked time and time again, and you need to be able to recover quickly. And one's reactive; the other is you are forcing the other player to react. So it's just it's it's total opposites. One's going mm-hmm. forward, the other's going backwards. Like everything about the positions is completely different. Yes, you're far away from the ball, and yes, everything's geared towards the pass. But that's kind of where the similarities end. Just for what it's worth on the defensive backs thing, like if you're looking at the safety position, I don't know if this makes you feel better or worse, but they do have a lot of depth there in numbers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Martez Manuel, Jelani Williams, Chris Sheeran, Jalon Carlisle, uh, Tyler Hibbler, a, a very talented freshman coming in, Sean Robinson, former quarterback, another convert, uh, and Stacey Brown. I mean, I just read you seven names all of whom have either seen the field or could see the field, and I wouldn't be super terrified of them being out there. Meanwhile, at corner, you basically go three deep. So 
if you're just looking at it from a purely numbers perspective of, hey, who are you comfortable putting onto the field right now? That's why I think you could see more uh, more defensive backs being the safeties as opposed to corners this year. I think that makes a lot of sense. And uh, you know, like I said, that might be that me- might be the route that they have to go. Because, you know, Abrams Drain had 18 snaps at corner last year. That's really not a lot uh, to get your feet wet, enough to feel competent about the position. So they're going to need someone to pitch in. Um, and speaking along those lines of pitching in, about uh, three months ago, yeah, three months ago, I wrote a piece about uh, Aaron Fletcher, our new defensive backs coach. He was coming to us from Tulsa. Uh, highly regarded defensive backs coach. Helped turn around the Tulsa defense. Uh, he has been fielding some solid secondaries for the past three years, and uh, once Tulsa got a pass rush, they really took off and, and were absolute dynamite last year. Um, and so when I when I was looking at what he had done at Tulsa and looking at the guys that he had been playing with, there's actually some really interesting names. Um, I don't know, excuse me, if you remember Reggie Robinson from mm-hmm. a couple years ago, um, but he was, he's the highest drafted Tulsa player since 2011. He was a corner under Fletcher had 18 passes broken up and four interceptions. And there's two other guys too, a gentleman named Allie Green, the fourth, and then another one called Caleb Evans. And I had looked at their stats and I was like, damn, like Fletch can do that with two star talent. What can you do with, with Missouri's guys? Cause Allie Green, um, eight passes broken up in an interception. And Caleb Evans was six passes broken up. They've been three-year starters under Fletch, and they've gotten better every single year. Like, man, that's so cool. I hope, uh, I hope that kind of production can can translate. Well, BK, um, we might be in the market of actually bringing them on campus. We have that yeah. opportunity. Both Green and Evans are in the transfer portal, um, and they are looking for a new school. And their old defensive backs coach just so happens to be at Mizzou. Um, I don't know what the chances are. But BK, at this point, it used to be, oh, that'd be really nice to have. And now we're kind of like, oh, we should we should really get those guys on campus. Yeah, Mizzou kind of needs one of these two. Um, they, they don't need to get both, but it would be really, really nice to have both of them. Um, let, let's start with Green. Uh, he is the one that I think is probably less likely of the two to end up at Mizzou. Um, whether that be his choice or Mizzou's choice, I'm not sure, but... He's a really good player. He was one of the 12 semifinalists for the Jim Thorpe Award, which goes to the nation's defense, uh, top defensive back. He's already listed on some watch lists right now for NFL draft stuff for 2022. He's six foot three, so he fits the length credentials that Mizzou likes for those players. He's big. He's uh, he's physical. He, as you said, has been productive. He played under Fletcher. He's done everything you would want at this level. He's a three-year starter at Tulsa. <laughs> He'd be a hell of a get if Masu's able to go out there and get him. Um, but it seems like Caleb Evans is the guy that is more prized. Um, he's already got offers from programs like Notre Dame, Texas, Nebraska. Mizzou was in on him already. Um, he reportedly holds an offer from the Tigers. He's 6'2". He's around the 200-pound mark as well, so he's got the length as well. He's a starter in 2017-2018. He missed most of 2019 with a shoulder injury. He ended up getting the medical red shirt there. 
Um, he was a starter once again for 2020 and was awesome for Tulsa, as you mentioned. So either one of these guys would be a huge get for Mizzou. They're both legit NFL prospects, like um, probably similar to some of the guys that Mizzou had drafted last year, third, fourth round-ish. Um, but <laughs> more than that, they're experienced. They've played at this level. They've been in these battles before. They've seen top talent line up across from them, and they're not going to be stunned by the speed that they're going up against. Either one of them would be awesome. Getting both of them would be just absolutely massive for Mizzou. Which, you know, it's not going to happen. It'll be one. It'll be one at best. But, you know, the other thing that you got to keep in mind and I spoke about this in the uh, the piece I did on the update to Missouri's football roster. There's only two scholarships for this in, for this season. Like, you can only bring in two guys who can play in 2021. So, you know, it's, it's almost serendipitous that two scholarships are available for two corners if they want it. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen. But, yeah, getting one would be a huge, huge uh, breather. Just getting another guy in the room, adding – some more depth, making sure that one less freshman has to reliably play every single down um, or one less safety has to trans translate over to corner. Like that's, that's a huge, huge deal. If they don't get any of them, then they need to find some kind of, I don't know, another transfer, a Juco who's been overlooked, like whatever the you, case you need a transfer. They're, they're you got to have it. You you can't you can't go into the season with what they have right now. Like you, let's be yeah. let's be honest about this. The situation is is pretty dire for Mizzou at corner right now. Um, yeah. they they could do it. They if they were able to make it through last season, they could find a way. This is a really good coaching staff. Um, they they would figure out a way to do it, and they probably do better than we're expecting them to based on what they have right now. But you never want to go into the season with what they have right now. They. They have probably three guys that you trust. In most years, you're going to play four to five corners by the end of the season. So this is just a situation where if if you go into the year with Birding and Rakestraw as the only guys that have any sort of real experience, whew, that's a really rough spot to be in. So even if it is a Juco kid, that that wouldn't make me feel a ton better about the situation because those guys no. are hit and miss as well. No, exactly. you, you need somebody that's played. Exactly. Like... You cannot just throw a scholarship for depth. Like that's that's not going to cut it. Um, you know, just just giving it to somebody is not going to be the answer because, like you said, it's, there's too many young guys. And if you're just getting a piece to to soak up snaps, well, you got four freshmen on the roster who can do that just fine, and they'll also be here for another two to three years. So like that that's way better. If you if you're going to suck out loud for an entire season, you might as well deal with the homegrown talent rather than waste the scholarship on a JUCO guy. And I know we're at 75, 85 is the, the limit right now. It doesn't matter. The, we're, not, we're not in a position to just throw away scholarships just to build depth because that's not what, that's not what the cornerbacks need right now. They need experience as well as depth. So um, I, I don't foresee a JUCO guy. I, don't, I, I forgot to check, take a look at the transfer portal for any corners right now, but it's just... Um, it's going to have to be a transfer guy. It's going to be a guy who can start play one of game one. And um, a Caleb Evans would be a, would be a great get. So I hope that we can nab the kid. That's the one that I would be like, 
if you could only get one of these two, he's probably the one that I would lean towards. G- Green is um, in some ways probably more highly regarded NFL-wise, um, but it seems like the one that college coaches are, are more excited about getting their hands on for whatever reason is is um, Evans. Yeah. So all of last summer, we talked about how weird the recruiting cycle was with so many kids committing early and not being able to take their visits, not being able to get on campus, not being able to see the coaches in person. And we knew that the blowback from that was going to be noticeable. (laughs) The domino effect from that, from that kind of COVID recruiting season was going to be felt five years down the line, especially once the NCAA just said that 2020 didn't count for eligibility. There those factors created such a turbulent environment once the season ended and really even as the season went on, but certainly as the season ended for roster management that we knew something like this was going to happen. And what I'm talking about is just the mass amount of transfers. You've seen it in basketball. You're seeing it in football. You know, a lot more transfers are happening now because now that school's done, they got the grades in. You can't transfer unless you have a good standing GPA. So like you are seeing more kids transfer now as school ends. Um, that's why there seems to be a rush. But, but the point is, is that I know I've seen a lot of Missouri fans kind of, you know, wring their hands and saying, well, what, what are these guys doing? What's drink? What's doing? I thought he was such a great recruiter. I thought we had such a great program. It's on the up and up. Why are these guys leaving? What is with this transfer epidemic? Um, so, I mean, I want to ask you a leading question, BK. <laughs> are you worried about the number of transfers that, that the Missouri football team has experienced so far? No, uh, not even a little bit. So there's kind of two parts to this, right? One is what you mentioned about this being a strange offseason with the way that COVID impacted everything and guys getting an extra year of eligibility, all of that stuff. That That is definitely part of it. The other thing is you just see this. Like turnover happens when there's a new coaching staff. You expect it. A lot of the time you'll see it before year one. Sometimes, though, it takes until year two where you really see the turnover start. And that may be because the program's not going in the same direction that the player thought it was going to. And that doesn't mean it has to be something that's like a horrible thing. It, it just could be, hey, I wanted to play in a 4-3 and now you're playing a 3-4. Or, hey, you know, you had more of an attacking style defensive line, previous regime. <clears throat> Uh, And now we're doing a read and react type of a system. This is not what I signed up for. I'm going to go elsewhere to be able to get my numbers up and hopefully get to the NFL. Like it could be a number of different things. I'm a better zone blocking scheme guy and you guys are doing more um, power gap schemes. Like all, all of these things go into this. It's not just about I hate the football coach. I'm out of here. So I think there could be some of that. And I think there could be some of they got recruited over. I think there could be some of the players were probably told by the coaching staff. You might not be recruited over yet, but you're going to be. All of this is speculation on my part, but this is what happens when there's a new coaching staff in place. And it happens the first year, and then it happens even more so a lot of the time in that second year. We saw it under Odom, and now we're seeing it under Drinkwitz. It doesn't mean he's a bad coach. just means that's kind of how these things work. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. And I will add, well, I will add to that point and then get back to my own. I think there's going to be even more roster turnover 
with this 2021 class. Because again, half of them have not even been on campus yet. Half of them have not seen the locker room. They have not interacted with any of their, their teammates in person. They have not been to Columbia. They haven't done any of those things. I think there's going to be a, a noticeable chunk of kids from this recruiting class that get on campus and go, oh God, this sucks. And that's okay. That's okay. Like they didn't have the opportunity to figure that out that figure that out in person. And so once you do, now that you have this this, you know, you can you can transfer once without penalty. Yeah, yeah. Do it. Do it. And I, I think the 2021 recruiting class as a national college recruiting class, you're gonna see that all over the place. Because these coaches have not seen these kids play in person for years. They haven't had them on they haven't had them on campus. Is he six three? Is he six five? Is he six one? Is he 285? Is he 295? You know, did he ever fix that that first step? Like, like they, they don't know. So I think there's going to be a, a continuation of the transfers as we go through next year. But here's the thing that I'm not concerned about as far as the recruiting stuff goes. And this is going to be a little, I don't know, mean, maybe mean. I don't know. You you all can judge as you see fit. I don't I don't mean any ill will towards this comment, but it is worth pointing out. You got to look at who has left the team since Drinkwitz has taken over and where they have ended up. Okay. Yes, Jadarius Perkins went to Florida. Okay. Hattiesburg is 10 hours of drive from Columbia and a seven hour drive from Gainesville. There are no direct flights. Okay. He wants to be closer to home. Whatever. Jadarius Perkins was also a weird kid. His, his recruitment was. All over the place. He was just a kid. Guy he's a weird kid. Have never spoken to him, but I know he had a very weird recruitment. <laughs> he just he was all over the place. Dude could not make a decision. So the fact that he's gone sucks. But like that doesn't surprise me. So let's look at the guys who's left so, so far. You got C.J. Boom, Maurice Massey, Dom Jacinto, Thalen Robinson, Jack Buford, Trey Williams, Chris Daniels, Markel Lutze, Cy Martin, Aubrey Miller, Jamal Brooks, Adam Sparks, and Jarvis Ware. All of those guys were Odom guys. Every single one. Recruited by Odom and his staff. Okay. Recruited by Odom to play for Odom under Odom's program. And they stuck around. They're going to give Drink a shot, you know. But they saw what the program was, what it was becoming, how they ran it, and they decided, okay, it's not for me. Or, hey, they're going to recruit over me. Whatever. That's fair. That's fine. You know, Dylan Spencer, he was an Odom commit. Drink had to fight to get him to recommit. And then he got into spring, you know, he didn't have a spring practice. He had two, two days of spring practice. Then COVID hit. Then the season starts back up and he finally got a couple weeks in and goes, oh, that's not for me. That's fine. That's fine. They committed to somebody different. They didn't want to play for this, for this staff. That's okay. But look where they ended up. And this is my kind of mean point. Okay. Yes. Perkins went to Florida. Okay. Yes. Utsi and Williams went to Arkansas, but everybody else. New Mexico, Troy, SMU, Southern Miss, South Alabama. What are these programs? These are G5 programs. Okay. Aubrey Miller, Dylan Spencer, they're playing for Jackson State. That's an FCS team. Yes, these departures hurt, but when they got back on the free market, the value given to them was G5 starter. Okay. That's just indicative of what Odom does as far as recruiting, and what Drinkwitz does as far as recruiting. Odom liked projects. He liked diamonds in the rough. 
and he tried to make him better. Drinkwitz likes to recruit talent and then deploy the talent. <laughs> okay, Drinkwitz, he's, he's recruiting a much more athletic kid. He's making room. He's making room for these new guys to join in. Most of these guys who are leaving are two stars or low threes. Trey Williams was a four, but, you know, whatever. These guys are two- and three-star guys because that's what Odom recruited, and that's what is the upper class, the crux of that upper class, two- and low three-star guys. They're gone now, and their value on the open market is a G5 starter. G5 starter. Do you think an SEC team misses that from a starting standpoint? No, they miss it from a depth standpoint. So if you can weather these losses for this year and next year and know that the talent coming in is super young and can get experience, you know, in 21, in 22, knowing that they're going to be much better than what these guys leaving could be. Baby, you got yourself a hell of a program in a couple of years. I'd take the bruises for that, wouldn't you? Absolutely. Um, and I hope Mizzou fans are willing to do that because one thing that I do fear a little bit, and we talked about this in the moment last year, Mizzou was not as bad as they looked like they were going to be last year. And what I mean by that is Barry Odom was not a very good in-game coach. He was pretty good at identifying talent. I think we have seen that now. Scouting, those sorts of things. Finding the -the under-the-radar talent, as you mentioned. He's good at that. He's not very good at developing them. He was not very good at um, putting them in the best situations to succeed at times on game day. Especially on the offensive side of things. Drinkwitz opened things up, got the most out of a lot of those players, and we saw what the results looked like last year. But a lot of those guys are gone now. They were in their final year at Mizzou. And now you have some of this depth that you're talking about that has also had a mass exodus. So you've got a little bit of a gap year where Drinkwitz's talent is coming to campus, but they're very young and very raw right now. And you've lost a lot of those guys that for better or worse, were kind of the depth and then the the top-end guys that were super experienced, those guys are gone now too. So you have one, maybe two years, where things might not be as good as they looked last year under Drinkwitz. You might take a few more lumps than you did last year. You might, the ball doesn't bounce your way the way it did against LSU. And so instead of going 5-5 five and five like they did last year, maybe this year they have the equivalent of what a 4-6 and six season would have been last season. That's not a huge deal. That's not a massive um, step back for Mizzou. It's just the reality of how these things work, you know? And so I hope Mizzou fans stick with Eli Drinkwitz, even if it appears based on their record alone that they took a step back this year because they're taking a step forward. You can see it in the recruiting rankings. It just takes time with stuff like this. It's, It's seeing competence on the field competence in the program management and an influx of talent on the roster. Um, I don't know if you all uh, subscribe to Athlon, their, um, their national college football magazine. I love it. It's, it's like my favorite, favorite thing to read in a given year. It's usually comes out around this time, actually. And one of the best parts, um, one of my favorite parts, I should say is the anonymous feedback from coaches about other programs in their in their division and in their conference. And you can tell when coaches recognize that a coach is on the right path, and you can recognize when they go, wow, this guy has no idea what they're doing. Um, Matt Campbell, who I feel like a lot of people are comparing Eli Drinkwitz to, 
Uh, the anonymous coaches said, hey, look, man, like they're getting their teeth kicked in for, for three years there, but they fought to the end. They were grinding in the fourth quarter. All of their concepts made sense. And like the type of kids they were bringing in were, you know, that was just the best fit for the, for what they're doing. And like, they, they just get it. They get it, man. And look at where Iowa state is now. They're like, they could be a top 10 team. <laughs> we come around, you know, August, it took some years. It took a lot of losses, but they had to show they were competent for a couple years straight with decades of being incompetent. Missouri has not been incompetent for decades, right? But we do need to show that, you know, this program can get back on the right track. And I just, I don't know. BK, I, I sp- I've been spending way too much time in chat rooms and bo- Tiger board and everything. Just like all the crazy stuff people talk about in the off season, um, including like, oh, well, when are we going to extend Drinkwitz? <laughs> Guys, <laughs> we're not extending Drinkwitz because you're going to see what happens this year. And there's a, good, a very good chance that you get mad. You get mad because you saw a five and five last year, like BK was saying, and then you see like a five and seven, right? Or four and eight. And you go, well, why, why do we pay him all that money? Well, that, that's why you don't extend his contract after one year and two recruiting classes. You wait. You don't need to have, you know, you don't need to try and stave off the blue blood wolves from, from poaching your guy immediately. Let him see what he can do in a couple years on the field. Cause there, I, I agree. I think there's going to be some regression in the win-loss column, but I think you're going to continue to see an improvement of execution, an improvement in the program overall. And while the wins might not follow that, you do that long enough, you bring in that talent, you keep that talent coming in, you develop your system, you you execute consistently. This is, this is how you build it. And that's where we're at right now. You're starting year two on the field. And I... I I always say I don't care too much about wins and losses. It's about execution. That's going to be put to the test this season, I feel like. But regardless of what happens this year, Drinkwitz still has my trust. And I hope everybody else feels that too, especially with with the hand that he's been dealt. This the hand that he has been dealt, especially this week. And Nate, the other thing people have to understand, and just to the point of like extending Eli Drinkwitz, you don't have to. His contract automatically extends if he's good. Mm-hmm. So like there's there's something to that effect as well of like, we don't have to get completely out ahead of our skis here. Eli Drinkwitz, if he ends up being good at Mizzou, and he's going to be, he already has been, um, he, he's going to be rewarded. I am in no way, shape or form worried about that. Yeah, he's he is making he's going to make twenty four million dollars over the life of this contract. His assistants are well paid. He's getting an indoor facility. He got the southeast end zone. He's getting all sorts of money coming in to build all sorts of cool stuff. Like he, there's nothing else he could possibly want. So, you know, again, it's only been one year on the field and two recruiting, uh, two recruiting sessions. So let's see what he can do long-term, but he's certainly got the trust. I'm really glad that he's got such a fan buy-in. He certainly got me on board. Uh, that's, that's been a tough thing to, to see in the past couple of, uh, in the last regime anyway. Um, so it's glad that I'm glad that he's got us excited. I'm glad that he's got the posi- the program going in the right position, but, um, yeah, we got, a, we got a long road to haul and I think we're going to be excellent in 23, but, uh, this might be an interesting year, man. And that's okay. Um, it happens. We've been here before as Mizzou fans. <laughs> um, it's been a while. And I think that's probably the tough part is like, you look back at 
what it was in the early 2000s and how long it took to get out of that. And I think people just kind of assume, is it going to be that again? The answer is no. We've already been through a, a portion of this rebuilding, quote unquote, process with Barry Odom. And so there is a little bit of a head start from that respect. Um, but yeah, it takes two to three years to get a program back on track. Now, the concern is if it takes five that's when you know, okay, at that point you're spinning your wheels. This probably isn't going to get turned around, and that's where you've got the issues. But I, I don't think it's going to end up being that. I think Mizzou will be able to get this thing turned around, and I think two years from now, so two more seasons from now, I think that's when you start really seeing the tangible results. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, So, you know, last time that we talked, we were dancing around the possibility – that Missouri would be getting a new four-star defensive tackle to commit. And lo and behold, we were right. Uh, I think uh, the, the couple days after we recorded, uh, Marquise Graciel uh, decided to commit to Missouri, make it official. Don't know why he did it on News Dump Friday, um, but that's that's what he did. And um, But yeah, the, it was uh, you know, just kind of talking about Drinkwitz and, and program building and all that sort of stuff. Same thing, guys. Uh, this is a huge get. He's out of St. Charles, Missouri, uh, like number 239th best player in the country, 16th best defensive tackle, 7th best player in the state of Missouri, uh, 6'5", 295. By the way, that's how big Sheldon Richardson was coming out of high school. It's a 5.84 star. Just like Richardson, he plays defensive tackle, defensive end, and tight end for uh for st charles high school he doesn't return kicks and punts like sheldon did <laughs> but uh he does basically everything else uh his tape is a lot of fun to watch especially the tight end stuff but um, he made it official he isn't he's going to be a tiger well fingers crossed he keeps to the commit um but yeah excited things man any any other additional input on uh, on this addition to the to the 2022 recruiting class so a lot of additional input actually i i kind of did a deep dive on what this commit means for Mizzou, how the Tigers are kind of getting back to that D-line zoo moniker um, and how he fits into what Steve Wilkes wants from his defensive tackle. So let's start with the recruiting front since that's kind of where we've been on the majority of the show. So this is now Mizzou's third, or it will be at least, Mizzou's third blue chip defensive line commit under Eli Drinkwitz. Kyron Matthew, or excuse me, Kyron Montgomery, Travion Ford, and now Marquise Gracial. That is three. And then in the previous almost decade, from 2012 to 2020, they had three combined. Terry Beckner Jr., Trey Williams, and Daniel Parker Jr., who ended up uh, playing offense. So, I mean, you could make an argument that it was actually two. So they're getting more blue chip talent on the defensive line. That's always a good thing. And he is a legit blue chip talent, man. He's now reportedly up to 310 pounds, actually. He's gotten even bigger from his listed rival's weight. He, in last year, in 10 games, had 61 tackles, 29 of which happened behind the line of scrimmage, which is wild. (laughs) Um, And, oh, by the way, he's a freak athlete. He reportedly ran a sub-five-second laser-timed 40-yard dash. (laughs) I mean... This dude is doing things at 310 pounds that just, they shouldn't be possible. I mean, I remember how excited I was about Terry Beckner Jr. Beckner was different. 
Beckner was like, he almost played like a nose tackle. Mm -hmm. He had this thing where he just became a ghost to offensive linemen. And I don't know how it happened, but he just ended up behind them. But he wasn't like a freak athlete. This is more in the vein of Sheldon Richardson. He's not Sheldon because nobody's Sheldon. But it's on that spectrum of like Sheldon Richardson, Jordan Elliott type of um, somewhere on that lineage, if you will, where he's a pass rushing, disruptive three technique. So he's going to line up um, kind of bet- bet- uh, on the outside shoulder of the offensive guard inside of the offensive tackle. He's just going to shoot the gap all day long. And that's what he's going to end up doing in Mizzou's defense if he signs here, when he signs here. Um, and man, I'm, I'm excited about this one. This is a big get for the Tigers. Yeah, it's 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 so interesting. Your, your piece specifically um, with talking about Wilkes, who had Sheldon Richardson. Mm-hmm. on his team in the NFL. Uh, and Jordan Elliott too, right? You have both of those? Uh, Elliott was the year after he year got after? there. Okay, yep. gotcha. Still, he played with Sheldon. He he knows that type. Um, and obviously Wilkes and, and our defensive line coach, uh, Jethro Franklin, they know NFL defensive line talent. They That's, that's what they've done the past five years. Um, so... They 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 obviously think very highly of the guy. Uh, obviously, we do too. Rivals does too. Twenty four seven does. Like everybody thinks highly of him. But when you have a guy who has handled this kind of talent before at an elite level, uh, it makes you feel good about how he can handle him, how he can deploy them, uh, and how he can develop him to make him better. So uh, it's it's very exciting for him to be joining the team. Obviously, it's very exciting for Wilkes to to get his hands on him. And, uh, yeah, I mean, this defensive line, man, like, yeah, if we're not going to develop two and three stars into D-line zoo, you might as well recruit them at the four and five star level to, to bring it back. So um, I can't wait to see them. It's uh, on the field. It's going to be awesome. Obviously, defensive linemen sometimes take a little time to see the field, but uh, his athleticism, his incredible athleticism, like you mentioned, uh, who knows? Maybe, you know, this time next year, we're talking about him cracking the starting rotation as a defensive lineman. What do you think? He's one that wouldn't surprise me because he's got the size. Um, sometimes with defensive tackles, what you'll see is that they'll come in. Uh, I think Makai Wingo in some ways is this way. Like they come in and they they still need a little bit of time to be able to develop SEC strength. They're strong for high school football, but they need to add a little bit of, especially in their lower body, a little bit of strength to be able to really compete at this level. I don't know that that's going to be the case for Gracial. He seems to be a guy that can come in immediately and be ready to go. I don't know if he's going to start, but I would not be surprised to see him get pretty quickly playing time on the field. One last thing that I wanted to mention about how he fits into Wilkes' system. Uh, Wilkes likes having attacking defensive tackles. I went back and looked at what his D tackles have done in the three years where he was kind of in charge as a defense coordinator or head coach of the defense. So in 2017, as the defense coordinator for the Panthers, His defensive tackles, remember, D-tackles, not the D-line, D-tackles, combined for 12 and a half sacks and 30 quarterback hits over 16 games. That's really good. In 2018 with the Cardinals when he was their head coach, the team was terrible, but his defensive tackles, which were not the most talented group by any stretch, combined for 11 and a half sacks and 20 quarterback hits. Again, pretty good season for those guys. And then in 2019, the year that really stands out, a very young Larry Ogunjobi, along with Sheldon Richardson, combined for eight and a half sacks and 19 quarterback hits. So his defensive tackles are disruptive. That's what he's looking for from those guys. 
And that's how, for me, Grayshall fits in so well is he's exactly what they're going to need in this system. Mizzou doesn't have a ton of those guys right now, but with Grayshall, I think they're in really good hands for the future of what they want to do under Steve Wilkes. Pressure up the middle is a beautiful thing, man. Like, I know Tom Brady hates pressure up the middle. I mean, if you think about it this way, if you got the defensive end crashing in from the, from the outside, a quarterback can take a couple steps up and buy himself a few precious more seconds, right? Like, that's really easy to do. Quarterbacks are trained to do that, to climb the pocket, like they say. You don't climb the pocket when the guy's right in front of your freaking face. <laughs> you have to now, you're, you're rolling right or you're rolling left, and you're rolling into the pressure from the outside. You know, Jordan Elliott was so, so good at generating pressure up the middle, but we just didn't have the ends to capitalize on him pressing the play to the outside. This is what Graciel can do. And if he can do that like Sheldon Richardson, then like Justin Smith of yore used to do, um, like Terry Beckner could just like whoop, zip right through it and still be there. Like that's that is such that is such an important aspect of the pass rush that really doesn't get talked about a lot. Collapsing it from the inside, uh, and with you know with the perceived talent that we have on the end as well, on both ends that are coming in, um, yeah, you could you could very easily foresee a, a ferocious pass rush in the next couple of years, and and certainly like you said, Steve Wilkes knows how to deploy it, knows how to use it, so that's that's awesome, man. I love this quote. I heard this from um, I don't remember who it was, um, but it's during the draft process is when they use it quite a bit. And they say disruption is production because sometimes you see on a stat sheet that a defensive lineman, whether it be an end or D tackle, has like two or three sacks in a college football season. Right. And a lot of that is because of what you're saying, where quarterbacks are rolling away from that player because they know that's the guy. If you can just avoid him, you're good. But it would it, it sometimes takes a pressure first to be able to roll away from him. And so if if a player is getting a ton of pressure, a ton of. Um, QB hits, whatever that is, without getting the sack numbers, that still impacts the game. That's how you influence bad throws. That's how you end up with fumbles or um, interceptions or just forced incompletions on a third down, whatever it may be. And that's how you win football games. So um, whether it be sacks or quarterback hits or tackles for loss or what pressures, whatever it may be, Gratial is a guy that can bring that to the game. And that's something that Mizzou is going to need. Like I said, I can't wait to see him uh, become a Tiger. Can't wait to see him play in the SEC. It's it's a very bright future for him and a bright future for the team. Um, but speaking of bright futures that are like going to happen before then, uh, Ben Fredrickson sat down with with Eli Drinkwitz, uh, did a little Q and A this past week, and um, you know, most of it's fine. Like it's always good to read that stuff and, and hear what your coach thinks. But uh, BK, you specifically pointed out uh, a little thing that we've talked about back and forth on. on Running backs is something that we've kind of quietly overlooked the past couple of weeks. And uh, what did what did Drinkwitz have to say about our, our running back stable here? So he was specifically asked by Ben Fredrickson. I'll read you the question and then his answer. Who is the newcomer who isn't getting talked about enough when it comes to making a difference this season? Eli Drinkwitz says, Elijah Young. He showed explosiveness throughout the spring. He is a guy we're going to have to get the ball to. Now, we've talked about Elijah Young quite a bit. You know I'm a huge fan of Elijah Young. This is something that I I was giddy when I saw it. I got to be honest with you, man. 
was like, oh, yes, this is the offseason quote that it is 100 percent. It's a preconceived notion that I already had. And he has just confirmed it. (laughs) And so um, I loved seeing this from Drinkwitz. But I really do think if you're looking at the offensive side of the ball and you're saying to yourself, okay, who is the guy who's going to come in this year and make a difference in a expanded role from what he did for the Tigers a year ago? I think the answer is Elijah Young. Like I'm right there with Eli Drinkwitz and I feel like I've got pretty good company there. He would be my number one pick off of the board for Mizzou next year. I mean, he's a young guy. Didn't see a whole lot of the field last year, but he he, he had some carries. He had some big carries uh, towards the middle of the season there. So, yeah, I mean, this this goes back to like, you know, what was that? It was yesterday or today, I forget. Uh, but on, on Twitter, I kind of kind of jokingly kind of seriously said that the 2021 Missouri football team should just embrace youth at, at every single position. And again, kind of facetious, but you you could actually do it decently well. Connor Bazelak is still technically a freshman. Uh, you know, obviously you got Elijah Young, who was still a freshman. You have receivers in Mookie Cooper, Dominic Lovett, right? You could have those guys see the field. Ryan Horstcamp at tight end. You and I both love that guy. Uh, he BK thinks he's going to win <laughs> eight Heisman's before he's done with his career at Mizzou. Um, Seems low. Yeah, yeah little, we'll take the over. Um but yeah, and then you got you know Kyron Montgomery, Travion Ford, uh, Tyler Hibbler. Obviously, we got Dalen Carnell coming in. Like you, you have a lot of super talented freshmen, both true freshmen and redshirt freshmen. If you went the full youth movement, that would be awesome. You'd probably lose a lot of games, but it'd be really awesome. But even if you didn't, I would love to see Elijah Young on the field. I'm with you. You're drafting freshmen uh, or redshirt freshmen. That would be a top pick. Uh, just kind of off the cuff, BK, I don't know if you've thought about this a lot, but when you're looking at the freshmen, whether it's red shirt or true, what are the top three freshmen that you want to see play? Not that you think are going to play, not that, you know, maybe the, the staff puts them out there and they start seeing starters minutes, but what three freshmen do you absolutely want to see on the field in 2021? And you're talking about true freshmen, right? So the class of 2021? If you want to stretch it out to the red shirt flavor, that's fine too. But yeah, let's talk. Let's talk true more more okay. than anything. Yeah, yeah. no, I'll, I'll play by your rules. That's fine. Um, Dalen Carnell would be one. Mm-hmm. Dominic Lovett would be two. Oh. Hmm. Third guy that I would like to see right away. I would probably go Ryan Horsecamp, the yeah. tight end out of Washington, Missouri. Yeah. Um, but I could listen to an argument for Kyron Montgomery as well, defensive end out of Indy. I, yeah. I could see an argument for him as well. Th- those would probably be the ones. And honestly, you know what? One other guy is an honorable mention. I know you asked for three, but I'll give you four. Um, <laughs> another one that I'll give you is Tyler Hibbler. Uh, you yeah. mentioned him. Yeah. I-, I would not be surprised if, especially towards the end of the season, they want to see what he can give them as a thumper enforcer at the back end. That's kind of going to be his role. If you're an NFL fan, Cam Chancellor for the Seahawks of yesteryear, that's kind of the type of role that – Hibbler could be in. Yeah. Yeah. I, like I said, I'm with you. I think Elijah Yudden is ready to break through. But from a personal standpoint, from my viewpoint, disregarding everything else that we talk about, in 2021, I absolutely want to see Kyron Montgomery, Dalen Carnell, and Taj freaking Butts. He's so much fun to watch. I I went back and rewatched his film the other day. Yeah. He is... 
he is huge. He is strong. Um, there's there's a scouting phrase called contact balance, which is basically what it sounds like. When you get hit, do you stay up more or less? Mm-hmm. The dude just doesn't go down on first contact. <laughs> like never, never goes down on first contact. And so he he's another one that I'm really excited about as well. Yeah. And again, I mean, I, I doubt that we see any of, well, I mean, Dalen Cardell now has a pretty good shot of seeing the field, but hmm. Kyron, Taj, I, I don't. I don't expect them to see starter minutes or even, you know, backup minutes, but those are like three guys that I just, I absolutely love. So can I list you one other thing from this uh, interview that Ben Fred did with, um, with drink that kind of caught my eye, please. So Ben Fred asked Drinkwitz, what changes do you think we will see in your offense and play calling between year one and year two? And Drinkwood said, you always play to your strengths of your team. Last year for us, with the emergence of Connor Bazelik, I think you saw the baseline of who, who we could be offensively. But there was also, for me at least, personally as a play caller, a thought of, let's protect him. Let's mm-hmm. lean on Larry Roundtree. Mm-hmm. Let's make sure we don't put ourselves in a bad spot and see if we can win this game in the fourth quarter. Now, we are transitioning to Larry Roundtree, or from Larry Roundtree, rather, to Tyler Beatty and Elijah Young. Ding, ding, ding. Connor is going to be a year older, and we have more weapons with Mookie Cooper and Dominic Lovett and Kiki Chisholm. So for us, I do think there could be an expansion of the offense. Forget the expansion of the offense portion of things. Look at the names that he mentioned, because this is one of those things that I try to do when they are not specifically prompted to a player to say, hey, at this position, who's standing out? Those sorts of things. When when a coach is on his own bringing up specific players at a position, Read into that a little bit. Don't don't go too far with it. But he mentioned Tyler Beatty, Elijah Young, Mookie Cooper, Dominic Lovett, Kiki Chisholm. Those are guys that I think you're going to see expanded roles for this year. Mm-hmm. I'd love to see how he wants to expand Tyler Beatty's workload. Same. You know, uh, 2019, Tyler had 108 rushes. Last year, he had 48. And 2019, he had 44 targets. And last year, he had 39. Um but he did a lot more with those targets um, in 2020 than he did in 2019. Averaged almost a yard better per catch, uh, half a yard better per target. So like he was, he was a lot more effective through the passing game. But again, he has not exceeded 115 carries ever in his career, in his college career. So it's not like he's all of a sudden going to become Larry Roundtree and and run it 17, 20 times a game. And I think that's where Elijah Young comes in. And and mm-hmm. clearly, Drink is seeing that. Like he goes to bed at night with with visions of Elijah running over his defense and going, "Oh hell yeah, this is gonna be great." Um, because that's that's what you need. You need that balance. Beatty's gonna be the the lightning. He can he can get you the big yards if you get him. You know, if you do his outside zone or if you get him on a screen or or just a drag over the middle. That's where Beatty needs to be to get to that point. You need someone to kind of soften up the defense or at least have that threat of a play action when you do the play action. And yeah, Young's sounds like Young's going to be the guy, which is very exciting. Name that I brought up to you a million times and I will continue to do so is Naheem Hines. Uh, he was the running back at NC State. He is a small guy similar to Tyler Beatty. And in his first two years at NC State, he had 61 total carries. Mm-hmm. In year three, he had 197. Yo. <laughs> and Damn. so... Uh, that was a guy that Eli Drinkwitz got up to speed, and in year three, he decided to utilize him as a true bell cow back. Could he do that with Tyler Beatty? 
It's not totally out of the realm of the possibility. I don't think he's going to do it to that degree. No. But I think you could see something closer to 130, 150 carries this year. That that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. I mean, you don't want Tyler Beatty to run 190 times, but you also don't want to trot out Tyler Beatty in obvious passing or yeah, obvious passing situations. That everyone's going to key on that. So you need him to at least you know be able to carry in first and second down. So yeah, I'd say 100, 130. That that makes a lot of sense to me. I agree with that. So we've talked about the future. We've talked about the present. Let's talk about the past. Let's talk about the past a little bit. We're in peak off-season mode here at Rockham Nation. Whenever we get in off-season mode, I start thinking about yesteryear and days of yore and all the great seasons and all the great players of the past. And so we decided to do uh, what I'm calling the all-state team. Uh, not not the insurance company, uh, but just the best players from states that Missouri tends to recruit from. We're breaking it down to an all-Missouri state team, an all-Texas state team, and then kind of like an et cetera. The all-USA team, I guess is what we're calling it. Um, but yeah, what I did is I went back through all the significant starters of the past 20 years, 2000 to 2020. Guys who have finished their careers at Missouri. And I put them all on a spreadsheet and I sent an email to the Rockin' Masthead and said, pick one from each state. Tell me who you think the best person at their position from their state is. And we tally up the votes and we're constructing an all-state team from Missouri, from Texas, and from the rest of the country. And I don't know how listeners, how you feel about it, how the readership feels about it. I think it's a lot of fun. It's, it's kind of interesting to go back through history and see this thing. I know you old people think I should go back to the 60s. No, no, that's too far. We'll, we'll talk about that later. But we've gone through quarterbacks, and we are going through running backs this week. Um, for quarterbacks for Missouri, nobody loves Kirk Farmer, apparently. <laughs> uh, but Drew Locke won, won the vote 6-1. to one. Blaine Gabbert was the only one that grabbed the other Missouri vote. But in a sweep, it was Chase Daniel for Texas and Brad Smith from the USA out of Youngstown, Ohio. BK, when we did our, our draft last year, Daniel and Smith were the first off the board. This this doesn't surprise you, right? No, this was the easiest one for me when it came to the voting. Uh, Drew Locke over Blaine Gabbert made a lot of sense to me as well. Uh, Gabbert was, a, I think he's he's become almost underrated by Mizzou fans. He was mm-hmm. a really good player here, mm-hmm. um, as, as was James Franklin, but... Yeah, I mean, if you're looking at the last 20 years of Mizzou football, it's Chase Daniel 1, Brad Smith 2, and then a little bit of a gap, Drew Locke 3 for me. Yeah, I agree. And again, no, nothing, you know, no disrespect to Kelly Bryant or Matty Bach, James Franklin. But, I mean, come on, man. Brad Smith? Brad Smith made this program. Chase Daniel took this program to Heisman-level heights, and Drew Locke shattered basically every passing record you could think of at the time. So, yeah, that was a... Uh, that was a no-brainer. But yeah, then, D- Daniel's the best player of this era. Yes. Smith is the most important player mm-hmm. of this era. And Locke is probably the most productive player of this era. Absolutely. Absolutely. So then you get to running backs. And we got a little bit, a little bit more variety this time, at least in the Missouri vote. Um, the All-USA running back, which you'll find out on Friday. So there's a little bonus for you all who listen to the podcast. <laughs> it's Larry Roundtree. Of course it is. He beat out Tamaria Crockett six to one. Uh, the Texas running back BK wrote about him today. It was Henry Josie who uh, beat Marcus Murphy six to one as well. And then the Missouri running back, and this was an interesting vote. 
uh, both from the off the field stuff and just from how it ended up. But uh, Zach Abron got a vote. I waffled between Abron and Washington. Um, Derek Washington got two votes, and then Tony Temple took the Missouri vote with four. Um, when you look at Tony Temple, Derek Washington, Zach Abron, since those are the guys who got the three votes, really a lot of it comes down to kind of moments and like the teams that they were on. And like you, you know, like like uh, Josh said, Tony Temple was a product of the system he was in. He was not the guy, but he was the best running back on one of the best offenses that we've ever seen, and he benefited from that. When you were voting, what did you look at as far as figuring out who the best Missouri running back was with such great quality across the board? So I think for me it was about consistency in some ways, and Tony Temple brought a lot of that. Uh, 06, 07, both years, he ended up with 1,000 yards on the ground. He was a productive player as a sophomore as well in 05. Um, and I also, i got to be honest, I come into it with a little bit of bias. I watched Tony Temple in high school, and he was one of the best high school football players I've ever seen. He was unbelievable at Rockhurst. Um, and so I, I bring a little bit of that into it. And I couldn't bring myself to vote for, for Derek Washington. Like I, the off-field stuff, just it, it's never going to leave me. And so that that played into it as well. So Tony Temple was my vote for, for all of those reasons and then some. Derek Washington's a piece of crap person. Um, when he was when he was on the field, he did great things, but you can't really escape that part. Zach, Zach Abron, he played 2000 to 2003, so BK, you were like two years old at the time, I know. <laughs> but um, Zach Abron, for me... Really good player. Really good player. Like He and Justin Gage were like my two favorite players during that time because they were... They were violin virtuosos on a jug band, man. Like they had Kirk Farmer trying to throw the ball or Terrius Outlaw and nobody else around him. And it was like every defense like, well, Zach's getting the ball and Justin Gage is going to try and go deep. And they still, they still, they slapped, man. Like it was, it was so good. They're so underappreciated because their team sucked. Uh, but Zach Abron was a beast. He, he was the, uh, I think it was leading rusher, all-time leading rusher. Um, until Brad Smith came along, mm-hmm. um, and then of course Justin Gage was was just an unstoppable receiver. He was he was a DGB before DGB was even born. So um, it was those two were incredible. And, and Zach Abron has a soft spot in my heart. But yeah, I mean, production not only production but just like the quality of of what they did for Missouri program. I, Tony Temple, definitely, I, I agree with you on that. Yeah, he, he's just. He's going to go down as, in, in some of this, the timing, right? You mentioned this, the teams that he played for, and this is in any sport, any level, you're going to more fondly remember the guys that are associated with that team. Like if you're a St. Louis Cardinals fan, anybody that was associated with 2006 when you won a World Series, that was like surprising, um, you're going to, those guys are beloved. And it's the same thing in Kansas City if you're a Royals fan. Like, there are players on the 2015 Royals that are not as good as some of the guys that were in the early 2000s. But it doesn't matter because the guys that went to the World Series in 2015, they did something that the players in the early 2000s never were even close to accomplishing. And so that's kind of how you have to look at it, at least for me as well with Tony Temple. He was associated with what was the greatest period in the history of Mizzou football in a lot of ways, especially offensively. Absolutely. Yeah. So we'll keep going. Um, we we did the wide receiver vote uh, earlier this week. Very interesting results. Uh, we'll just keep going through the offseason because it's peak offseason content. So stick around. Go to Rockham Nation. You can take a look at that. Um, 
So yeah, it's been a tumultuous couple of days. Um, my my voice is entering the transfer portal right now, uh, so I'm not gonna be able to go too much longer. But uh, any any parting shots? Be that's there. it, man. Hopefully the next time. I I apologize if there's any audio issues on my end. I sincerely apologize. As you heard at the beginning of this show, I am in the middle of a move. Um, we are nearing completion with that move. I'm getting my office set up right now, so. I promise by the next time we record, this audio will sound crisp and clear like it normally does. Um, and so if, if there were any issues along the way today, if it sounded a little bouncy or whatever, I, I really am sorry about that. And I promise we will have it ready to go by the next time we record. Yeah, and I am not sorry. <laughs> I just I feel like crap and you all can deal with it. So, um, but yeah, that, that's going to be uh, that's going to be the show for today. We appreciate you listening. And hopefully the news cycle slows down a little bit. Uh, but if it doesn't, you know that Rocking Nation's got you covered, man. Um, so, yeah, hey, as always, we appreciate the downloads. We appreciate those subscriptions. Leave a comment. Give us a rate. We'd love to hear your feedback, right? You can follow us on Twitter, at Nate Edwards. You can follow him at BK Sports Talk. You can listen to him on the radio, 101 ESPN in St. Louis, 10 to 2. Uh, you can also follow the Rocking Flagship at Rocking Nation. We appreciate you tuning in this time. We'll try to do better next time. And until then, M-I-Z. Z-O-U.